Welcome to the Western Ba'ul podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful to those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice of the spiritual path. New talks are posted by the first of each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled The Transformative Power of Guarding One's Speech and was given by Bandu Dunham in Prescott, Arizona on May 16, 2020. Bandu gravitated to the spiritual path at a young age and has been the writer and editor of a spiritual publication He's a noted glass artist and author of several books on glass art. He is also the author of the book Creative Life, Bandu Dunham. So tonight's talk is about guarding one's speech. And it's going to have um, a few sort of main sub-themes in that, um, about mindfulness and sovereignty and energy management and action and I've got a few quotes from uh, Nizugadatta Maharaj. He's a spiritual teacher, an Indian spiritual teacher, who was the 20th century, late 20th century. Um, so he's fairly contemporary. A lot of these quotes are from his book called I Am That. One of the things Nizugadatta Maharaj said is that words are pointers. They show us the direction, but they cannot come with us. So that's a good thing to remember about speech in general. Well, it applies to really anything I'm going to have to say tonight, too. A lot of what I'm going to be discussing is um, what are the mistakes we made make in terms of our speech? What are the pitfalls that we fall into? And then, you know, what's behind that and how can we avoid them? So like the, uh, the symptoms, the causes, and potential remedies. So talking about carelessness in speech or lack of mindfulness, let's talk about the symptoms first. And I think these are things that everyone's pretty much familiar with in life in general. So the idea of the principles I'm talking about are that they, they apply to life in general. And specifically, if you're on some kind of spiritual path, which ultimately everybody is, but if you're on a specifically intentional path that you consider a spiritual path, like a, a practice, meditation practice, or some kind of religious or spiritual practice, uh, which, to my mind, includes any kind of artistic practice. And I think we have a couple of artists. Uh, we have a few artists in the audience. So symptoms, symptoms of carelessness or lack of mindfulness in one's speech. These are clues that we may have been uh, careless in our speech. So I like to say when I'm teaching people glass blowing, I like to say that uh, it's all in the setup. Everything is in the setup. When you're heating a piece of glass in a torch flame, the way you put the heat in from the very first second is going to affect how much control you're going to have over it uh, and whether you're paying attention to that. So the same thing is true, I think, in life in general and in, our, in tonight's topic. Um, it's all in a setup. So these symptoms that we're going to talk about are things that we actually set up for ourselves in many cases, typically, without knowing that we set them up. So the first symptom I want to talk about is chaos, confusion. Misunderstanding and resentments are aspects of chaos and confusion. 
failed agreements or agreements not kept and vagueness. So these are all symptoms of not having stated clearly what's going on for myself to someone else or maybe not listening carefully to what someone else has said, saying about what's going on for them. So if you are experiencing, you you might even be experiencing one of those things in your life right now, right? Misunderstandings and resentments, uh, failed agreements, or vagueness that's bothering you. I mean, this whole situation, the COVID-19 situation, has a certain vagueness to it, which is, uh, it's disconcerting, and it's uh, an interesting opportunity for practice, uh, for spiritual practice, because it really, it drives home the point of having one's own center in relationship to all the sort of craziness going on around So there is, you know, there are circumstances that are imposed on us where there can be vagueness and there can be confusion. I mean, that's also true. But I often find it useful to assume that whatever I've got going on in my life is a result of something that I set up. So it may not always be literally true, but it can be very instructive to look at things that way because Maybe it's only 40% true that what I'm experiencing is something that I set up. But if I look at it as if it were 100% what I set up, then that opens up a view that is more likely to catch the ways in which it might be something that I set up. And obviously the reason to see why, or to see that something has been set up is then to go back and figure out how did I set that up? Uh, And then you can take steps to maybe not do it in the future Um, And also, if you're trying to remedy a situation that's screwed up to begin with, you're in a situation that's screwed up. If you understand how it was set up, then you can remedy the situation that much better. Like misunderstandings and misunderstandings with people. You're in an argument with someone. And if you don't notice that they that they didn't understand something or you didn't say something clearly to begin with, you're not even on the same page. And then you're just talking past each other. I'm sure we've all had the experience of, you know, talking past people. In spiritual practice, we run into the problem of talking past ourselves. So that's something that I have an interesting, uh, you know, experience with from time to time, noticing that I'm talking past myself. Maybe you can relate to that too. There's a, uh, here's another quote from Nisargadatta Maharaj. He says, The entire purpose of a clean and well-ordered life is to liberate man from the thraldom of chaos and the burden of sorrow. So I love that expression, the thraldom of chaos, you know, being enthralled by chaos. You know, sometimes people will use the expression of being addicted to chaos. They'll use that to talk about um, businesses sometimes. They were saying that about Amazon at one point. Maybe they still are. Um, But a a business can get, uh, and maybe if you're an artist in your own career, you might notice some of this going on where things are kind of crazy when you're trying to get things going and you're, you're, putting in long hours, crazy hours, um, just a lot of chaos because that's what it takes sometimes to get something started. But it's possible to become addicted to chaos so that then when things are starting to work more smoothly or could be working more smoothly, you keep screwing things up by creating chaos because there's some part of you that feels like if it isn't chaotic, it's not dynamic. And there's definitely a difference between chaos and dynamism. That's something I'm always trying to uh, remind myself because 
I've certainly seen ways in which, you know, the culture, the culture of my studio has an element of being addicted to chaos. And a lot of times that kind of chaos is something that I set up by procrastinating. That's a good one. That's a good way to set up chaos. There are a lot of things that can be done right away. And I, if I tell myself that I can't do it right away, then I might be setting myself up for problems later. And I've been seeing that actually, that's the thing I've been working with lately because time is flowing kind of in a different way right now, um, or has felt that way during the, this pandemic where the flow of time is different and I'm inspecting um, kind of what are my assumptions about the flow of time. And I'm noticing that some things that I would previously have said, I don't have time to deal with that. I'm going to put it off. Actually, I can do it. And if I do it now, then it sets in motion a whole chain of events that's a different chain of events than if I had put it off. Um, so that's a, a useful observation that I found, and maybe you've noticed something like that as well. Other symptoms of, uh, symptoms of lack of mindfulness in speech. So we talked about chaos and confusion. That's one whole category. You know, that includes misunderstandings and resentments, <clears throat> failed agreements, vagueness. There's another whole category of symptoms, um, which we could call exhaustion or enervation. So wasted energy as a result of not having mindful speech. So uh, this category of symptoms of speech, mindless speech or careless speech, exhaustion and enervation. So wasted, wasted energy, it takes, you know, obviously, you know, maybe it's not so obvious, but... Uh, if you look at it, it takes a lot more energy to uh, repair something that's gone wrong than to do it right the first time. You know, there's a saying, maybe it's a common saying. I heard someone using it to describe a situation in a, you know, in a business or something where it's like there's not enough time to do it right the first time, but there always seems somehow to be enough time to do it over again when you've screwed up. Okay, everyone, you can raise your hands if you've ever had that experience of Having to redo something, I mean, you know, if you're a glassblower, you, you've definitely had that experience. And why is it that we organize ourselves that way? You know, if, you, if you're really honest with yourself, you can look back and, or, and maybe even see it in the moment when you're doing it, like, I'm going to cut a little corner here. I'm gonna, I bet I could get away with this, cutting this corner. But no. And you get denied. And then you have to do it over. And then we have the experience of regret. Regret is mostly useless, except when it can teach us something. So uh, it's, it's good to learn from, learn from our mistakes. You know? And better yet, to even learn from the mistakes other people make that we hear about. Uh, another one of the symptoms uh, of careless speech that I put under this category of exhaustion is drama, which wastes more energy. If you've ever felt like you, you wished your life were not so dramatic, you might ask yourself if there are ways in which you set that drama up. You know, I find that instructive to do from time to time. And then also uh, just wasted time falls under this category of exhaustion and, and enervation. So all of these are things, if you're experiencing any of these things, it's an opportunity to question, maybe there's some way I set it up. And maybe I set it up through some kind of 
um, carelessness in speech. Now, that doesn't answer every situation, obviously. But like I said, it can be very instructive to look at it as if that were the answer. You know, they have, there's this saying that you should, um, you should pray as if everything depends on God and work as if everything depends on you. And I think there's a lot of value in that perspective. Because um, who knows if there's even a God? I mean, it's one of those things you can't prove, right? Um, but if, you're, if you feel like you have some kind of relationship to God or the divine or whatever, or higher reality, whatever you want to call it, uh, if you pray as if everything depends on that, and then you also work as if everything depended on your, your effort, um, that can be a pretty good balance, you know, because both of those things create perspective for the other. One of the themes I wanted to talk about under, under the symptoms here is desire and fear. Nizagadatta Maharaj said that, uh, you know, desire and, and fear are basically the two kind of poles that motivate our, our um, unenlightened activity. Um, so when we're in a sort of unenlightened state or not a mindful state, we tend to be run by those things. I wrote down here one of my notes. In consumer culture, mindfulness is replaced with a desire and fear. Those are my words. In consumer culture, mindfulness is replaced with desire and fear. So, you know, if someone's trying to sell you something, the fastest way to do that, or one of the most effective ways to do that, is to, to activate your desire and your fear. And if you look at a lot of the advertising we have that we experience in our society, um, and especially in the political landscape too, people are, there, there are attempts to, usually successful, attempts to motivate people through desire and fear. So anyway, desire and fear uh, can be like a lens. It can be a useful lens through which to look at some of our considerations about mindfulness of speech. So here's a quote from Nizagadatta Maharaj, which is, you know, he's talking about the highest perspective from an, uh, an enlightened point of view. And so someone asked him a question. They said, when I see something pleasant, I want it. Who exactly wants it, the self or the mind? So they're having these philosophical discussions about the nature of self, mind. So Nizagadatta Maharaj says, the question is wrongly put. There is no who. There is desire, fear, anger. And the mind says, this is me, this is mine. There is no thing which could be called me or mine. Desire is a state of the mind, perceived and named by the mind. Without the mind perceiving and naming, where is desire? So if you're not uh, familiar with some of these ideas, I mean, it's, it could be a, seem a little bit abstract. But the, the gist of what he's saying is that who, the I that I identify with, is in many ways an illusion. It's a construction of the mind. And with, when we identify with the mind, then we identify with a fixed idea of the self. And his teachings, uh, like many of the teachings in the East, are about transcending the limited version we have of the self, uh, largely, largely through questioning what it seems to be. So um, if you read Nisargadatta Maharaj, you'll see a lot of references to that. So the, thing he, the, so the thing he's saying here is desire is a state of the mind perceived and named by the mind. Without the mind perceiving and naming, where is desire? It's an interesting kind of inquiry to make of oneself. Like, if I really look at my desire, 
peel away all the surface layers. What is it? And it's really just kind of a construction of the mind. So speech, speech expresses our thought and and it reflects the clarity or confusion of our thoughts. And by implication, the clarity of our attention. So um, blathering on, speaking speaking mindlessly as opposed to mindfully, which hopefully I'm not going to be doing too much of tonight. Being aware of that distinction. If you've ever caught yourself kind of blathering on in a conversation, then um, it's possible to just stop. But, you know, I've often caught myself sort of blathering on in some situation, and I feel like I can't stop. I feel like I'm sort of committed. I have to keep going. And uh, if you've ever watched that from the outside you know that it would be fine if the person just stopped, right? But if you're the one doing it, you kind of feel like you're on a track and you have to keep going. But really, it's okay to just just stop. People will be grateful, in fact. Yeah, another thing about speech is that it reinforces existing thought patterns and habits that we have and makes them seem more real and solid than they are. So another reason to be mindful about speech is that we can start to see you know, how we might be constructing our reality in ways that we don't really want to. How am I setting up my experience by talking about it after the fact or in the middle of it or beforehand? Uh, you know, if you've ever used or heard someone use the expression, this always happens to me, that's a really perfect example of how we can use language to construct or reinforce ideas that we have. Um, you know, that, that expression, this always happens to me, is one of those suspicious little turns of phrase. Just like when, when someone says, if you're in an argument with someone, and maybe you've said this yourself, you always, blah, 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 or you never, da, 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 da. Those are real good indicators that there's a kind of a, some kind of mind trip going on and that we're interpreting things in a fixed way that may not be conducive to a harmonious and fruitful resolution of whatever the argument might be about, really. So you always, you never, or, you know, I always, I never. And also these things like, um, this always happens to me. If I, if I catch myself saying this always happens to me, it usually means that I had an expectation about what I was going into and that I have a, um, what's called, they used to call an est, uh, listening for. You know, you're listening for something, you know, you're just waiting and maybe in an intimate relationship or even just with anybody you know well or at work, you might notice that you have a listening for, like for your boss to say something in a certain tone of voice and it might trigger something in you. So a lot of this, the drama that we have in our lives, situations like that, for example, so-and-so always says or always does such and such a thing that sets me off in some way. That whole drama could very well be something that we're constructing ourselves. In any case, we're constructing part of it. So we've talked about some of these symptoms of speech that is less than mindful excuse me, the causes for less than mindful speech are many. <laughs> but I think they can kind of, you know, we'll, we'll try to boil them down to some categories. One of them, one of the big ones, I think, is desire for attention. 
and especially the, uh, wanting to be liked, the desire to be liked. So many times I've observed people saying things that weren't really well thought out uh, or maybe ill-advised based on a desire to be liked or making promises that you can't keep based on a desire to be liked. Now, I'm saying that I observe this about other people because, of course, it's always easiest to observe things about other people. But anything that you observe about someone else, uh, it's really useful to consider that maybe you do that yourself. So I'm kind of implying that, you know, in things I said. In fact, if you, if you study Castaneda's books, which are really great, one of the things he says later on is that the, the reason we perceive, the only reason we perceive anything is because it resonates with some, he calls them luminous fibers, and we won't get into that tonight. But it's because the luminous fibers in me resonate with some luminous fibers out there, and that's what, what it, perception is. So sort of a uh, more everyday interpretation of that or application of that could be this sort of psychological principle, which is well known, that the things that bother me that someone else is doing very often are things that I'm doing myself. Uh, so if I'm honestly observing myself, self-observation being a very powerful spiritual technique, if I'm honestly observing myself, then I will notice, usually, that the thing that bothers me that someone else is doing is actually something that I do myself sometimes, a game that I play. And that's maybe why it's so annoying when someone else does it, because I sort of understand what's behind it, you know. They're doing that just to get me. They're doing that just to get me. And maybe it's because when I do that, I'm doing it just to get someone else. Right? So wanting to be liked can be a real strong source of mindless speech. Because wanting to be liked leads us to say things that maybe aren't really true, making promises that we can't keep, you know, giving a sort of an interpretation to something that uh, maybe isn't really accurate. If you saw that movie Gallipoli out years ago, there's a moment where the, they're about to go into battle and some, some officer, he wants to please the senior officer. And he says, oh, well, our flag has been seen in the enemy territory, which was completely not true. But he's wanting to be liked. And he says that to the superior officer to try and give him something nice. And as a result, you know, in the way it's portrayed in the movie, they make the decision to go in and attack. And it's a, basically a slaughter, suicide attack. So wanting to be liked, it can have life or death consequences in certain situations. Personality types. There are some personality types that just are more prone to careless speech. And uh, sometimes that can be endearing. What is it? Double Aquarius? I think double Aquarius, they tend to kind of overshare. You know, if you've ever been with someone who overshares, it can be embarrassing. Many times it's harmless. Uh, but sometimes you sure wish, you know, that maybe that was a little bit too much information that you didn't really want. Also, just being on autopilot, you know, when you're talking, you're not really paying attention to, to when you're talking, you're in a conversation, maybe you're distracted where you'd really rather be doing something else. So that can often lead to mindless speech. Being on autopilot, just not pay, paying attention. Seduction by others. Certainly, most of us had the experience of being seduced into careless speech based on something someone else is saying. Uh, in the political arena, 
you know, that's the kind of thing happens all the time where um, someone will lead us, lead a crowd into saying, th- you know, cheering things that are sort of unconscious. But there are many situations where someone else entices us to speak carelessly. So that's something that uh, on one level, you know, maybe it's not fair to say that I'm responsible for that. But on some level, you're responsible for whether you're letting yourself be seduced by an enticement to uh, careless speech. There's a French teacher, uh, spiritual teacher, Arnaud Desjardins, and one of his teachings is that the mind, I think this is from Arnaud, the mind just generates thoughts. It does. You may have noticed your own mind doing that, just generating thoughts. You're not really responsible for the first thought that your mind comes up with, you know, when you're faced with some stimulus, someone looking at you funny or something happening. The first thought that comes up, the mind is so fast, you're not going to control it. However, you're responsible for the second thought. So that's a very useful distinction, I think. The first thought that comes up, maybe I can't control it. But where does it, what comes next? What chain of thought is then going to be taking place? I have some responsibility for that. So being seduced by uh, situations or, or people enticing you into careless speech. Uh, you know, like, uh, well, Borat was an artist at that, right? Sasha Baron Cohen, some of his, and Borat and some of his other characters that he's done. I mean, that's his whole shtick, right? Is getting someone to say what they might really be thinking, but under, you know, under normal circumstances, they wouldn't say it. But if you entice them, you, you can get them to say that racist or homophobic or otherwise nasty thing by just scratching the surface and making them feel like, oh, yeah, you can say that. We're buddies, you know, and then you get it on tape and, ooh, it can be a little embarrassing. Seduction by others. There's also seduction by oneself. So uh, being in love with the sound of your own voice, if you've ever seen anyone who's in love with the sound of their own voice, it's not hard to find examples of that. If you've ever caught yourself being in love with the sound of your own voice, then you know what that's about. It's a form of self-involvement, you know, which is often not useful. Self-involvement is a general category of uh, attitudes and activity, right? Another one, another major category here, and this is actually a big one, is discomfort with silence. So being uncomfortable with the space empty space in a conversation can really lead to problems. But being comfortable with empty space in a conversation can really lead to very fruitful and interesting exchanges when we have that space to move about in and to allow, you know, to to be receptive. But if we're uncomfortable with silence, which is, you know, it's a form of fear, being uncomfortable with silence. If that fear comes up and we need to fill the empty space, then we miss a lot of opportunities and can actually even set up problems. So meditation practice, which is kind of a universal spiritual practice, whatever religious tradition you might be interested in or spiritual tradition, meditation practice is actually a way of learning to be comfortable with silence. And it can be very difficult at first to just be comfortable with silence, including like a kind of physical silence, like not fidgeting a lot, you know, just make yourself be steady 
and be silent. And the mind will just do its thing. And it's not like you have to control the mind, although there are forms of meditation where you want to. But the way I was taught was to just let the mind quiet by not following it. You know, it'll do its thing. But there's, there's another part of you. There's a part of me that can be still. And it takes time to find it. Uh, if you're in a real hurry, you may not be able to. But taking some time for meditation practice is one of the most powerful and valuable things you can do because it teaches us to have a relationship to the mind where we're not taking the mind so seriously all the time. So if you spend a long time, a lot of time just sitting and maybe observing the mind and letting it do its, do its thing and coming to rest, you'll notice that the mind spends a lot of time on just random stuff filling space. And when you notice that during meditation, you start to suspect that that might also be the case outside of meditation. And then it can be really useful because then you start noticing these ways, all the, some of these different phenomena that go on, like I've been listing, like that need to fill an empty space. Maybe it's not really so urgent to fill that space. You know, unless you're in broadcasting, right? Then you've got to fill the empty space. So... That those are some sort of categories of causes of mindless speech. And another big aspect of that category is leaking. I would call leaking unconsciously surrendering our sovereignty. You know, we each have a certain sovereignty as a person, as a being. In American society, that gets really overblown in a lot of ways um, as, a, as a means of manipulating people. It's interesting how the idea of personal sovereignty is used to manipulate us by people who either are seeking um, to dominate us politically or um, economically you know, by making us consume whatever it is they're selling. So, so sovereignty, individual liberty, yay, yay, is like a selling point. But there's something else. There's a legitimate kind of sovereignty that we all have. And when we lose touch with that sovereignty, or if we unconsciously surrender it, then we tend to leak, leak our energy. And one of the forms of leaking is unconscious speech. So a very practical application of this is sometimes called the Chinese law of secrecy, or way of keeping, keeping yourself from leaking is this thing called the Chinese law of secrecy, which is when you have a project or something you're doing or something that's ongoing, not to talk about it until it's finished. You know, that's one of the large categories of mindless speech is talking about something that hasn't manifested yet. That's a half-baked idea or an idea, that a, a process that's in the midst. And sort of metaphysically speaking, it just leaks the energy out of it. You know, I have a, something I'm working on. If I start telling people about it too much, you know, there's some ways you can share a little bit, but if you share too much, then the energy can go out of it. To interpret that psychologically, if you don't want to get metaphysical about it, you could say that when something is in our imagination, it's really, as far as the mind is concerned, it's just as real as if it's actually happening. So if you talk about something that you're, you want to do, a, a good example of this is like, someday I'm going to... Someday I'm going to go to Machu Picchu and climb it. You're always telling people about these things on your bucket list. Talking about them too much can be a sure way to drain the energy out of them. Because to the mind, 
you know, I've talked about it so much. It's like, yeah, you know, I visualize, I, I sort of know what it would be like to be up there. It's like a subconsciously, it's like, eh, maybe I don't really need to put the effort in to do it. So this is kind of a tricky thing about the law of attraction that people talk about and manifesting things through declaring this, them in speech and all that stuff. Those are valid principles. And it's also very useful to make this distinction between that and oversharing or over talking about something to the point where you're un actually undermining yourself. And I think that can be a process of uh, maybe even many years figuring out what that, that distinction is, developing that discrimination. One spiritual teacher I heard said, whenever you have something going on in your spiritual practice, like you've made some discovery in yourself or a discovery about yourself, that you should not tell anyone about it for seven years, that you should guard it as your own private treasure deep within the recesses of your, of your heart, your psyche, whatever, uh, until it really develops solid roots and is firmly established in your body. Seven years, I don't know if seven years is really necessary, although they say seven years is the amount of time it takes for your body to replace all of its cells, that every seven years you kind of cycle through a whole complete replacement of all the cells in your body. So maybe that's a reason. You know, you want it to be kind of ingrained, whatever spiritual progress you've made, ingrained in your cells before you leak it out, before you let other people mess with it, you know, whether they're messing with it unconsciously or not. Other forms of leaking. Thinking out loud can sometimes be a form of leaking. In, in relationships or at work, your workplace, little side comments and quips that we make. Has anyone here ever made a little side comment or a quip? Perhaps to the person you're intimate with? Something that's a half-formed thought that kind of leaks out in some little way? That's definitely a form of not mindful speech. And it can be difficult to summon the nerve to say in a mindful way, this situation, the way I feel, use I statements, it's a good idea. The way I feel in this situation is da-da-da-da-da-da-da. The way I feel when the garbage has not been taken out for two weeks is da-da-da-da-da, to give a very mundane example, but I'm sure you can fill in your own. So... The little side comments and quips, it's a way of leaking energy. It's like we don't want to fully commit to what we're feeling, but we want to kind of let that energy out. But those little quips, often we're better off saving the energy behind that and then having an intentional conversation about, you know, whatever it is, the copying machine at the office, whatever's going on with the copying machine. Oh, and, and under the category of leaking, sometimes we talk about things in order to impress others, right? So again, that Chinese law of secrecy thing. And it's tricky in this world, the world of social media, because you want to keep your, your audience engaged, right? If you're promoting yourself through Instagram, you want to posting, you know, as, as an artist, you post works in progress or things you're developing. Uh, it, it can be dangerous to post something too soon. I found, I've definitely noticed if I post a project I'm working on either too soon or a, a, at certain critical stages, it can actually be harder for me to get back to it, especially if people give it a lot of likes. Like here's this half finished, finished piece and it gets a lot of likes. And it's like, okay, kind of like on some level, I feel like I've accomplished my goal. I've gotten the likes I want, right? I just wanted to be liked. <clears throat> and then it's harder. I have to womp up a greater amount of energy 
actually go back to that piece and finish it. Some of you may have had that experience too. Letting off steam. You know, another way of describing this thing about the Chinese law of secrecy is that you want to keep the lid on the pot while things are cooking. You don't want to open the lid and let the steam out so that it, um, the energy gets away from it. Or another great description of it, I heard this was in a, I think an Orson Scott card book, where someone described, you know, the energy that we build behind a, pr- a process or even just our own spiritual intention, developing spiritual power like Castaneda talks about. It's like building a dam. So you build a dam and the water level builds up behind it and it builds up a tremendous force behind that dam. But if you're always leaking, um, then the water level never rises up high enough to get that tremendous amount of force and power that is behind a dam. So we, we don't wanna dam things up in the psychological sense of suppressing things. But there are ways in which we can exercise restraint, you know, and really that's what guarding one's speech is about, is restraint. And the discipline of a certain kind of restraint can really be valuable to uh, accomplishing a bigger purpose or a bigger task. You build up more energy, which is what you need in order to accomplish a greater thing. Just kidding. Just kidding. It has been said that there is no such thing as just kidding. And you've probably experienced this it's more noticeable when someone else says something to you that is maybe really what they're thinking, but then they see the look on your face and they go, just kidding, right? Just kidding. Oh, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Really, there's no such thing as just kidding. That's a hard one because there's many times when I want to say, oh, just kidding. Yeah, that's one to chew on. Okay, potential remedies. We'll go a couple minutes about some potential remedies and then we'll open it up to discussion. And if there's no questions... I can prattle on with, uh, I have some notes, you know, some good quotes and things. So it won't just be mindless blathering, hopefully. But anyway, let's talk a a little bit about potential remedies. One of the potential remedies to mindless speech is being willing to be boring. Okay. So I talked a little bit about empty space in conversation. Being willing to be boring is very powerful. There's not that much more to say about it. I think it's pretty straightforward. But boredom, boredom is not necessarily a problem, especially if you've got a meditation practice. Boredom can be very useful. So being willing to be boring. uh, Another potential remedy is never answering more than is asked. This was a favorite saying of my teacher. Don't answer more than is asked. That can be really powerful and really useful. Helps us avoid oversharing, helps avoid dragging things out longer than they need to be dragged out. And it also encourages people that you're in conversation with to ask their questions in ways that are really useful, you know, to ask useful questions. Meditation practice, I referred to that already. Meditation practice is a really great remedy for a lot of things. It's not an instant remedy. It's not, you know, a magic remedy, but what it does is over time, and does typically take some time, over time it starts to reveal to us what our mind is up to in many situations, and that's its usefulness. I mean, it has other forms of usefulness, right? All those physical things they talk about, it's good for your blood pressure, whatever, but real aspect of usefulness of meditation is that it starts to reveal what the mind is up to and how the mind operates because the mind is only one dimension of our existence. You know, we, 
especially in this society, we tend to operate as if the mind really is in charge, should be in charge all the time. But there are some decisions that should be made by the heart. There are some decisions that should be made by the body, you know, by a physical intuition responding to. Like, if you've ever been walking around a city at night and you had a feeling you shouldn't go down that street, you know what it's like for the body to make a decision. And hopefully you haven't ignored that and found yourself in a difficult situation because people do. Potential remedies. Seeing speech as invocation. You know, treating speech with the respect it deserves. Speech is a faculty that, you know, not every creature on this planet has. My cats tell me all kinds of things, but they don't have this faculty of sophisticated speech that we do. And it's worthy of of respect. Speech can be powerful. And if we treat it with respect, as worthy of respect because of its power, then it opens up a whole world of relationship to speech. Minding what we say, paying attention to what other people are saying. Speech is something that's worthy of respect. Speech acts as an invocation. I was talking earlier about how we set things up. And speech is one of the ways we set things up. We invoke things by how we talk about them. You can get metaphysical about that, about invoking things through speech. And that's what a lot of um, ritual is about, uh, spiritual, religious, metaphysical ritual is about. But even just in a psychological way, the way we talk about things sets them up. For a lot of these reasons I've already listed, and you probably know more, more reasons. So one of the things about speech is that it can unconsciously create counter-reaction in people. You know, you may have felt that, noticed that in yourself or seen it in other people. When someone says something, there's almost this automatic response, especially if it's someone on the other side of the political spectrum who's saying something. There's this thing of like, well, what about? What about this thing that disproves what you're saying? You know, so this counter-reaction. So especially in a polarized climate, political climate like we have nowadays in this country, um, you see that a lot where Anything one person says on one side of the spectrum, immediately someone on the other side wants to counteract it, contradict it. And it's like, ah, all this back and forth. Like, shut up. <laughs> that was the subtitle, by the way, that we had for this talk. The subtitle that I came up with is shut up because that's such a spiritual principle in this situation of being mindful about the speech. But, you know, it's kind of rude, so we didn't really put it on the title. But really, if you wanted to sum everything up, and I'm not saying this to you, I'm saying this to us, you know, to me, that one of the main things, one of the most powerful things I can do is just to keep my mouth shut in so many situations. Okay, so speech is invocation. It's useful to mindfully make sure we ask for what we really want. And then sovereignty. You know, I talked about sovereignty a little bit, but just treating speech with respect, regarding it as a resource to be guarded comes under this category of sovereignty. Guarding my own sovereignty by guarding what, uh, how I speak. And uh, it doesn't mean you never say anything, but just being having some mindfulness about how I'm using language. So I think what we could do is uh, pretty soon here, open it up to whatever uh, questions people might have, so here's a chat. Uh, you spoke about being willing to be boring. Do you have any tips on achieving this state of mind? Uh, 
Well, I guess one of the first things to do is notice what boredom is and, um, you know, what's like internally, what's going on in the state of boredom for yourself and um, being at peace with that. Because if I'm uncomfortable being bored, was it, I think it was Mark, Mark Twain, he said, if, you're uncom- if you are unable to be happy when you're alone, perhaps you bore other people also. So um, by coming to terms, being at peace with feeling boredom yourself, I find that as being really useful to be willing to be boring. Boring is a value judgment that we put on things. You know, we can have two people in the same situation, one of whom finds it very boring and the other one finds it very interesting or peaceful or whatever. So coming to terms with that experience of boredom and the value judgment that it is, Mm -hmm. and then being at peace with other people, maybe having value judgments about you. You know, again, I think it kind of comes back to this thing of wanting to be liked. So if I'm really busy wanting to be liked, then anything, in one way, giving a talk like this without the audience here, it's easier in some respects because, you know, if someone yawns, in the audience, I don't have to feel like insecure, like, oh, maybe they don't like me or I'm boring, right? Um, So I don't get to see any of that. Um, But really, if you've ever given a public talk, at any given moment, someone is probably going to be looking bored or distracted or whatever. It's just the way it is. And if you give talks, you have to kind of be used to it. Yeah, more. Okay, great. Can you say something about rumor and gossip? Mm. Yeah, don't do it. (laughs) It's a bunch of crap. No, again, it's uh, rumor and gossip. It, it's that thing of wanting to be liked, I think. You know, like we're sharing information. We're trying to impress someone with some secret thing. I'm trying to impress you with some secret thing that I know that other people don't know. So I want you to be impressed by me. Or maybe I want you to like me because I'm, I'm telling you something, some dirt about someone that I think you're going to want to use. So... I'm kind of sucking up to you that way. Those are expressions of uh, insecurity in the same way that being afraid of being boring is an expression of insecurity. And there isn't always a quick fix way to fix insecurity. But again, I come back to meditation practice. I mean, it's so powerful, especially if you do it for a long time. The way meditation feeds into all of these things because we learn to question the stuff that the mind is up to. The thing about insecurity is someone very wise once said that security is not the cure for insecurity. So security is is something you have to generate from yourself. It doesn't have to do with fixing everything outside of you to make you feel secure, really. Yes, there's another one. Uh, Yes, several more. I was wondering about finding the space where restraint is at its most optimal. Mm. Wow. You know, in, in, in Japan... There's a foundational principle of relationship. It's called enryo, I think, is restraint. And it's a, it's a social value. It's a principle by which people conduct themselves. It's considered very valuable to have restraint in Japanese culture. And by default, you just kind of have restraint. And people will sometimes tell you, oh, you don't have to have restraint here. Please relax, you know. 
Um, but people kind of start from a place of restraint. Of course, if you're walking around feudal medieval Japan and there's samurais who might cut your head off if you look at them funny, you kind of learn <clears throat> to have restraint. As a martial arts instructor I knew said, a, a military, a martial society is a polite society. Um, so there's something to that, knowing that the consequences could be dire for carelessness. You know, America is sort of an informal culture. We're very informal. But it, it, it can serve to recognize that things can have consequences. And if we respect speech as a very powerful thing, uh, when we respect its power, then restraint kind of becomes a little bit more natural. Yeah. Okay, so someone asks, um, I'm struggling with uh, sadness mm. to share out loud. But it seems like maybe holding things in, maybe mm. not always be the best. Yeah, you know, restraint, restraint is not the same thing as suppression. And sadness, um, there, are there are times <clears throat> when it's very appropriate to just express what you're feeling. You know, uh, uh, it's very situational. It's very situational. So I don't feel like I could give a rule about whether you should express sadness or not. There are situations where it's very appropriate to express it. There are situations where it might be counterproductive as far as it, how other people might be able to use it. Um, or it may be a space, you may be in a space where it's not safe to be vulnerable and express that sadness. So I can't really give a, a cut and dried rule. But there's also this thing in terms of restraint. There's a, a spiritual value to developing a broken heart in esoteric and not so esoteric spiritual traditions, there is discussion about the value of a broken heart. So I don't want to say you must never share your sadness, but sometimes a private sadness can actually be a useful ally. Kind, useful, helpful, necessary. The four imperatives in speaking. Is it kind? Is it useful? Yeah, yeah. To ask, so these are sort of um, questions of discrimination. When you're about to say something, if you have the presence of mind, which is why it's called mindful speech, if you have the presence of mind to ask yourself, is what I'm thinking of saying kind? Is it truthful? Is it helpful? Is it necessary? Yeah, I mean, you know, I could have started with that and not given this whole talk. I could have just put that up on the screen and said we're done. But yeah, I mean, those principles are really good for cutting off gossip, you know, catching yourself from gossiping, you know, kind, truthful, helpful, necessary. Those are four distinctions we can make. And each one of those could almost be a whole, whole topic of discussion. So uh, I, I recognize the great value of prohibitory speech and mindful speech. Could you speak to the value of uh, eloquent or virtuous speech? Yeah. My, my teacher's teacher really encouraged people to practice praise as, as a spiritual practice. There's something that happens when you praise things. And, you know, obviously people have a practice of praising God in different traditions. But praise itself, and especially if you can bring yourself to praise something that you might even have negative judgments about, bring out some form of praise it helps bring things into perspective. You know, when people give you flack, you try, try and praise and respect the good they've done. Even your enemies, you know, put that into perspective. 
and eloquent speech. I mean, taking the time to speak eloquently can be very powerful. To choose one's words. You know, the English language has a lot of words. And some of them have subtle degrees of meaning. And there are probably other languages that have even you know, greater degrees of subtlety, obviously. But if we take the time not to just shoot off your mouth, shoot off a, twit, a tweet, <laughs> don't be a twit, shooting off a tweet, you know, just taking the time to consider what one is saying and, and writing falls into that same category. There's a whole different momentum behind thing, words that are chosen carefully and with intention. And again, in, in sort of a ritual context, if you want to invoke something, invoke the presence of a deity, or you know, if you want to put that in psychological terms, to invoke the energy of what that deity represents, the, which it can be a blessing or it can just be a form of psychological clarity. You know, there's many ways and levels on which things can be interpreted. Can you say anything about how to distinguish between using speech to build something up and leaking the energy away. Hmm. So using speech to kind of... Build momentum behind it, yeah. I think one of the things is not to be too specific. I'm going to a, an arts festival with my, all my glass to sell, and I'm planning to make $1,000 a day, or whatever number you want to create. You know, being too specific, sharing that with other people can sometimes be... Um, a way of leaking, you know, so because you're sort of opening it up. It's like your sovereignty, you, you want to preserve your sovereignty so you can share with people. I have I'm going to an arts festival this weekend. You know, I'm going to be displaying my work. Come on by. Here's my booth number here. You know, this is some of the stuff I'm going to be showing. And you leave a sort of an open end, an open space into which the fulfillment of that whatever your goal might be. You might have that goal in your mind. Oh, I'm going to make a thousand a day or 10,000 a day or whatever it is, but you might not put that number out. You kind of hold that. But as far as what you're sharing with people, you're creating a space for that, their energy to come in and support the fulfillment of that. So a degree of, of vagueness or of talking about things in terms of the possibility that exists you know, rather than talking about it as if it's something that is very fixed. Because sometimes, you know, the possibility that is going to show up is better than what you are going to define with your speech anyway. So, yeah, I think that's one of the things. Well, but what about like promoting something that is really valuable mm -hmm. that you want people to know about? Yeah. That, that they might not otherwise. Well, you can... Another thing is to tell people about what already exists. So, um, you know, something that already exists, something you've already accomplished, or information that's really useful that exists, that isn't, that isn't in a tentative state. I guess that's the distinction, is whether something has a tentative quality, you don't want to put extra weight on it um, by invoking uh, unconscious maybe uh, unintentionally unhelpful thought forms from other people, if you want to be you know, metaphysical about it. The thought forms that people create, you know, like I was saying, when you say something, it often creates a counterstatement in people's mind, if that makes sense. Okay. Any more? Is there principles of meditation that you use? 
Yeah, like not trying to control the mind. But when I notice it's gone off on a tangent, you know, and I'm kind of going off some, just bringing it back to being present in the space and a kind of questioning of what's underneath. And if I look at it, if I, if I kind of look below the surface and see, okay, there's compassion, then maybe I can dwell on compassion as opposed to all these things my mind wants to do based on that. And that takes me deeper into a state that's a little bit more primal. And I think more useful, really, certainly during meditation. Um, I was thinking about how um, some really great teachers or really great parents have instructed us in talking to the being of a child. Mm. Um, So the child doesn't necessarily even have the cognitive ability to recognize what we're we're saying uh, by way of language. But what we're doing is we're actually speaking to being and um, that's something that I think we could apply to adults as well. So just putting that in there in case you wanted to comment on that. Yeah. Well, definitely an aspect of mindful speech is knowing who your audience is. So on an on a outward level or a superficial level, it's a matter of knowing, you know, what people's background is. How old are they? What do they, you know, are you talking about the same thing? But on a deeper level, yeah, um, it can be very useful to have the intention to address people's being. Because especially in a situation you know, like this, um, I think people are hungry for that, to have their being addressed. And even if you don't say anything like, I'm talking to your being now, um, just having that as an underlying recognition in what we're saying. I mean, when you're in love with someone, that's kind of what you're doing anyway. You know, you may not describe it in those terms, but that's the experience when you're in love is you're, ta- you're, you're in communion with, you know, hopefully you're talking to, addressing and listening to each other's being, you know, a deeper level, a more primal level that can even go beneath the personality. 